Amen. Hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Hey, turn in your Bible to Psalm 1. My name is Luke. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Legacy. It's good to have you here. Um, I see some faces I don't recognize. Thanks for coming. I look forward to getting to meet you maybe a little bit later on. Psalm 1 is going to be the passage that shows us Jesus much more clearly today, even though we're going through the book of Acts. And we are going through the book of Acts today as well. We're going to continue our work through the series, Jesus' People. But Psalm 1 is going to help us by encouraging us today. What, what I really want today to be about is encouragement. I want you to be encouraged today. Um, I know if you were like me, sometimes it could be a little difficult to figure out whether God is for you or against you. You ever feel like that? I mean, we, I think most of us in this room really feel like he is for us, right? Because of the whole Jesus thing, the gospel, God coming to mankind and the person of Jesus. So we see that, but, but I think there's still in most of us a, a, somewhat of a hesitation because we don't really see it. He's not helping us out of our jam. We're not quite sure whether he is really for us or really against us. Because if he was for us, he would get us out of our jam, would he not? I mean, all you have to do is think longer than... 5.2 seconds, and it's easy to recall jams that we're in right now. In some different department in your life right now, you've got a jam, right? Maybe it's a relationship jam, a job jam, a sickness jam, and I can't get married jam. I don't like the person I married jam, an unemployment jam, something. Something is rising to the surface of all of our lives where we're tempted to put our hands on our head and say, dang, this is hard. In fact, this is a lot harder than I thought it would be. I mean, Lord, you see this. I'm looking up like Jesus is in the ceiling. Jesus, you see this, right? You see what I'm struggling through. You're witnessing this, right? I mean, I thought we had a deal where I help you, I serve you, and I obey you, and you were supposed to save me from my jams. But you're not doing it. You're not fixing this for me, and it's too hard. And I think when we get ourselves in the place where we are not quite sure and dialed in on whether God is for us, against us, we will do just about anything we can to move the needle, to get God's attention, to get him to serve us, to get him to do things for us, right? Now, this is the genesis, and now that's in all of us. We all want to do that. That's a piece that's in all of us. That is actually the genesis of what you hear people refer to as the prosperity gospel or the prosperity message, right? And listen, I'm not here to bang on that pinata all morning either, right? But it's important for us to know that what builds that theology is alive and firing on all cylinders in all of our hearts, right? To be very simple, because some of you are not familiar with what the prosperity gospel or the prosperity message is, it's basically believing that God's intent, his dire will and purpose for you is to always, under all circumstances, be happy, wealthy, right? Happy, wealthy, maybe even to be wealthy and at the same time. So happy, healthy, and wealthy. In other words, if you're in pain of any kind, poverty of any kind, then you're basically not in the center of God's will for you. You are not furthering his intent. You are, in fact, outside of his will. Now, a lot of you, you don't really believe that. You wouldn't say that out of your mouth, just like I just said it. But the good news for many people is not so much God has gotten me out of my cosmic jam, but 
God is getting me out of my current jam? What will it take to get God's attention? What will it take? What, what do I have to perform? What do I have to say? How do I have to pray? What do I need to say when I pray? What do I need to do to get God to do something for me right now when I really need him? So when it comes to the prosperity gospel or the prosperity message, which again is in all of us, we ultimately become all-powerful. We ultimately are the one that moves God's hands. He follows our lead. God is then domesticated. We've trained God to bring us things, and these things are called blessings as the theology goes. To be more wealthy, to be more healthy, to be more happy. It might sound a little bit like I know what I'm talking about here because I did this for a long time. I was a prosperity preacher. I was a prosperity gospel type of a guy. I would teach this way. I would pray this way. I would counsel others this way. So I feel like I know it a little bit inside and out because I would work with people and the thermometer really of how they're doing, whether it was with health and wealth and happiness, would tell me how they're doing spiritually. So if I ran into somebody that maybe they weren't doing good. Maybe they were unemployed where it was uncomfortable. Because, you know, it's always okay to be unemployed for like a week or two. But then it just gets uncomfortable, doesn't it, for those of you who have been unemployed? It would be easy for me to sit down with them and say, listen, that's not God's will for you. That's not his desire. That's not his purpose for you right now. You must be doing something wrong. Have you tried praying this way? Have you tried fasting three days? Have you tried fasting two weeks? Are you reading the Bible a certain way? Are you doing things to move the needle? It would be easy for me to do this, for me to tell a person, God doesn't want you to be in any kind of pain. You understand. The reason you're in pain is because you're doing things incorrectly. In fact, God probably doesn't even know you're struggling right now because you haven't prayed correctly. It's hard to believe that that's in all of us. And modern America did not invent this. This is not as new as TBN or Creflo Dollar. It is as ancient as Adam, our first parents. It goes all the way back. So when this series, what I'd like to do today is we start trucking through, or as we're actually almost halfway through the book of Acts, what I'd like to do is spend some time looking at a very, very fascinating passage, at least to me, that shows us whether God is actually for us or not. And actually how you can tell, how you can be certain in those dire, dire moments. So look at Acts 12, if you have it in your Bible already, but I want you to stay in Psalm 1, okay? So if it means moving from Psalm 1, don't do it, don't budge. We're going to throw Acts 12 up on the screen. But this is the word of the Lord for us today that is going to help us see Jesus very well. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of of unleavened bread. Let's pause for a minute because this character Herod is a pretty provocative character. You see, Herod's granddaddy was also named Herod. And this was the Herod that wiped kids off of the face of the earth if they belonged to the Jews. Little kids were wiped out in an attempt to wipe out Jesus. Right? We know the story. It was all political maneuvering. He would do whatever it took, even if it means extermination, so that he could hold his office. That was his granddaddy. His daddy, also called Herod, right? Not to confuse anybody, but also called Herod, was the guy that executed John the Baptist and delivered his head on a platter. Why? Again, political maneuvering to stay popular, to make sure his stock price stayed very high. History has it, this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, was worse than both of them. He was fixated 
on being popular at all times. He was fascinated with the idea of his stock price sailing and would do anything it took, anything it took, to make sure that it stayed that way. So we have this unique opportunity, or Herod does, where he can actually make that happen. Because you see, by this point in the story of Acts, and by this point in the story of the church's history, the Jews are becoming more and more of a stench, the Christian Jews, right? Believers are becoming more and more offensive to the mob. Remember, only about one to two to maybe three, if you push it, out of ten people were becoming Christians. That left a good seven to eight that were not. And they were becoming more and more frustrated because now these believing Jews, the Christians, actually love the Gentiles, as we've seen the last few weeks, and the Samaritans, as the body of Christ grows. So they're becoming more unpopular and more unpopular. So this is the thing. This is happening during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's a seven-day festival that falls on the south side of Passover. Happens every spring. All of the Jewish men would show up to this. It was a very important thing. It was also a high, high time of patriotism. You had a whole nation there that was very patriotic against the Gentiles, against the Samaritans, and against anyone that would call themselves God. So in Herod's eyes, this is a fantastic time to exploit and grandstand. And he pulled a page right out of his heritage, right out of his granddaddy and his, grand, and his father's book, And he said, I'm going to persecute the church. And it worked. He kills James, the brother of John, breaking up those brothers. It's the first apostolic martyr. He puts Peter in jail. And it worked. Everything worked. You know, James is actually the first apostolic martyr. We've seen Stephen martyred, murdered already. But this is the first time we've seen it happen among the apostles. And it's actually an answer to prophecy. We don't talk about this very often. It was already kind of prophetically put out there that this might happen. You you could recall back whenever Jesus and the disciples were talking back and forth, and Jesus had to stop the conversation and talk to James and John and their mama and all the others around and say, listen, you guys are talking about who's going to be at my right and who's going to be at my left and who's going to be my inner circle. And that's just not for me to tell. That's not for me to discuss with you. But one thing I will tell you, you will drink of my cup you will drink of my cup. What does that mean? It means that you are going to see pain, and you will see tribulation, you will see travail, you will see suffering, you will see the gospel collide with the mob and the masses, and the same thing is going to happen to you. The same thing is going to, and it did. That happened to him. Now I want you to put yourself, and I say this week after week after week, don't get too far from the story. Put yourself in the shoes of the church just your average part of the church. You're looking around. There were three main apostles, right, that were part of building up the church, John, James, and Peter. James is gone. Peter's in jail, according to Luke, for the third time. So he can't seem to stay out of jail. He's always in jail, and this time it looks like they're out to kill him. They're going to destroy him the very next day, right? So they're about to be two down, one to go. Stephen's been dead. He's already in the ground. It would have been easy, and if I was one of them, I am one of them, but if I was alive at that time, I would have said something that sounded like, but God, are you for us or against us? Because we're in a jam. I thought you were for us. I mean, because there was that whole explosion of the church earlier, and everybody, my neighbors, everybody was becoming a Christian, and we were collecting goods, and we were helping the poor, and we were sharing our, and leveraging our wealth towards each other. And, there, and then there were the, the, the tongues of of fire above the heads and the Holy Spirit and all that stuff. And, and now, 
everyone's getting snuffed out. Are you for us or not? We're doing what you asked us to do. What's going on? You know, and by the way, before I get too far from this point, the destruction of Jesus' people, it's always going to be popular with those who hate Jesus. It's still like that today. It will always be hip and cool and fashionable and culturally acceptable to persecute the church and those who love Jesus, right? Many of us, I think, are wrongly waiting for the church to be popular and hip and cool. It's not ever going to happen. It's not ever going to happen. We could drag fog machines in here and hang art everywhere and talk weird and do anything we could to be hip and cool. It's just not ever going to work, guys. Not as long as we love Jesus. Not as long as we preach the gospel, right? It's just not. You will drink my cup is the message to the church. That's not just a message to James or John or the people. Friends, that's a message to you and me. You, just like James, just like John, are going to collide with mankind, the mob that is not so excited about Jesus. Mankind desires to worship self as king. The gospel says you must put down yourself and worship me as king. Those two things can't operate and exist in the same person at the same time. Therefore, culture will never embrace Christianity. It's just the way it is. I got to move on. I could preach on that forever. That's a different sermon. But let's look at verse 4. And it starts off with this And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Okay, four squads of soldiers. There's approximately four soldiers per squad. So we have about 16 roughly soldiers that are going to be a part of guarding Peter, okay? Now, this is the way it works. A high-value prisoner would always, traditionally back then, have their right arm shackled to a guard. This is such of a high-value portion that both arms were shackled to two guards, then there were two more right outside the gate. And to make sure that it was going to stick and he wasn't going to break out again, every few hours, another squad would come and relieve them. They would have fresh minds, Fresh hands on the swords, ready to go at any time. They're putting a lot of resource towards this because Peter had gotten himself a little bit of a reputation of an escape artist, right? This is the thing. This is what I can't get my mind around. Here he is, sleeping on the floor of a jail. Maybe the same prison cell that James was in before they executed him. Probably still mourning his friend. Here he is sitting there, chained to two guards on the floor, going to be executed the very next day. And you know what's the most fascinating part about this? Not that he's going to break free, but that he's sleeping. How? Listen, I'm excited. He's about to break out of jail, and that's super cool. And we're going to look at that. But how is he sleeping? Why does he have any reason to feel safe? James didn't make it, he's dead. God didn't rescue Stephen out of that. He's dead. He has no reason to have any restfulness in his heart, any peace at all. 
Have you ever experienced this moment before? Try to capture this moment. Praying, pouring your heart out to God, hoping that he jumps into the middle of your situation and rescues you from this jam when you look out and you see that God hasn't done it for others. Two people come down with cancer, one dies and one lives. Two people live different lives. One is despicable, the other loves Jesus and serves his people. And except the Christian dies and the despicable person lives to like 130 or whatever, right? Jesus is on the scene. He heals some and he doesn't heal others. Have you ever been in that moment where you pray and you pour your guts out? God, you you see this, right? This is the deal. I serve you. I obey. I follow these things. I have my quiet time. I write checks to the church. I show up whenever the doors are open. I do the things that you have asked me to do, and I'm still rotting in my jail cell. Do not see this jam. I don't even know if I can pray with any confidence. You're not doing it for Jack. You're not doing it for Janet. Why would you do it for me? And then this question, this internal struggle, it produces what we call anxiety. Some of you are anxious, right? You don't sleep well either, do you? It's funny how it's in the same person. Anxious. How is Peter not groaning under the weight of this grinding pressure and anxiety, this toil mixed in with foreboding? How is he not just awake and just hair falling out and wringing his hands? He's going to die the next morning. How is he sleeping of all things? You know what I think? I think he already came to the place where he had trusted his life away. I think he'd already come to the place where he was content and satisfied with anything that God was going to do because he trusted God that much. That's what I think. I, th- I think he already died. Now, I'm ripping that phrase off. I took it from James Calvert. James Calvert is an old Methodist missionary from the 1800s. He would go to the Fiji Islands, you know, way before it was a tropical paradise, back when cannibals lived there and ate people. And there would be missionaries going there ship after ship, and they would eat these missionaries before they even got off the ship. James Calvert goes with his family and a bunch of others, and right before he walks off the boat, the captain grabs him and says, look, you can't do this. If you go out there, those savages are going to eat you and your friends. You will all die. And he says, friend, we died before we came here. We died before we came. I think this is where Peter was at. I think come death, come sword, come escape, he knew that God was in control and he was satisfied with that. He is content with God. He is content. And because of that contentedness, he could sleep. He could rest. He could be at peace. Not me, though, right? Not you either, by the way. We struggle here, don't we? Why can't we be at peace like that? I think there's several reasons, but I think the main ones are we just don't trust God. I'll speak for you because this is where I'm at. You might not be with me. I just don't trust God. I mean, I trust him because I'm supposed to trust him, but not really. I still want at least one hand on the steering wheel. And if I can't have some control over what's going on around me, then I get anxious because I don't trust. I think resisting God in a time of war and turmoil is just a sign that we don't fully trust him, but whenever we are able to sleep chained to guards with impending doom around us, I think that's a sign that we are resting in the fact that he is in control and that he is good and he's going to take care of us. And I think some of us in this room today would pay a king's ransom for this kind of peace. You're hearing me today, you don't sleep well. 
When you're resting, you're not really resting. You're thinking about ways to get out of your jam. When you pray, you race to begging God to get you out of the jam. Whenever you meet and talk with people, all you could talk about is the prison cell and the jam that you're in. You might not on the outside be wringing your hands, but come on, you're wringing your hands. God, you can get me out of this jam. I know you can get me out of this jam. Why aren't you getting me out of this jam? Let's move on. Verse 8. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Okay, just pause just for a brief second, because this recalls the power of God to rescue those that he has chosen for mission. All right? And we've seen this over and over and over again. This is a repeat Right? This is God's M.O. We see it with the Israelites. He breaks them out of their jam, their prison cell, which happens to be Egypt. Right? Vacates that. He does it again with Jesus, breaking him out of a jam, a prison cell which is death. He escapes death and joins the living. We see it there. We see the exact same thing happening here. He repeats. He's doing it with Peter. He does it with you and he does it with me, and it's totally his nature. Why? Because he regards us more than we even regard ourselves. And it glorifies him. Let's look at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. We're going to see a lot about him and the rest of Acts. He's another church planter. He does a really good job. Where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer recognizing Peter's voice in her joy she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate okay y'all get that a little bit of slapstick there a little bit of New Testament slapstick you got to savor it when you get to it it's not all over the place she runs in he's still standing outside knocking verse 15 they said to her you are out of your mind now that's not like what we say today today we say like bro you're out of your mind ha 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 It's not an LOL moment back then. That means that you're saying you have dementia. That's like a cut down, like you're maniacal. You're out of your brain. It was meant as a little bit of a slur. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel, because that happens all the time, right? So they're just making up stuff at this point. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. (laughs) But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, because he doesn't want to go back to jail, and everyone's freaking out. He calms them down, and he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Get this. What are they praying for? The whole, they're praying for Peter to get out of jail. He gets out of jail, probably before they even started praying for it. He gets out of jail, comes and knocks on the courtyard door, saying, let me in. And they don't even believe it's him. They go to the person has dementia and is maniacal. Then they go to it has to be anything, even a supernatural figure that is not Peter before they see it with their own eyes. Do you do this? I do this. We don't admit that we do this. But when I pray for something, it's easy to not really believe that God can do it. 
So we pray, you know, someone comes up and they're like, hey, I'm, I'm unemployed, I've been unemployed for a couple months, will you pray? Yeah, I'll pray for you, let's pray, bro. And we pray for him to get a job. Why am I doing that? Because that's what you're supposed to do. What else do you do? Right? I need a husband, I need a wife, let's pray for that. Let's pray for that. I'm sick, I need to get rid of this cancer. Let's pray for that right now, brother. Right? We pray for these things. But inside, there's a hesitation that God really can do it. That's why some of you, whenever you pray for your friends to become Christians, and then you later on get news that they became a Christian, your first response is, really? Really? Wow. And then you want to know more details. Well, who, who was there? Who was the one to talk to him? Like, when did this happen? Instead of, of course. Of course that happened, because we've been praying for that, and God can do that, and God can do that. I am like this. So what Andrew Murray says who is a, uh, he was, he's not anymore, he was a pastor in South Africa. He says, there are Christians who have prayed and told God what they want, but they have done no believing. They have never asked, do I know certainly that God is blessing? Do I believe for certain that God is going to keep me? Am I perfectly sure God is going to guide me? And then he says this, take warning. Take warning and learn to say, every time you go to pray, I am not going to pray unless I believe God is listening. And I am sure that God hears me, and can I trust him fully that he is going to bless me? It's a good word for us. It's a good word. It's changed just since I've been reading this quote over and over again. It changes my posture as I approach him. It changes it. Let's look at verse 18. We've got to move on. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers, I bet not, over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Pause. This is what's going on. In Roman rule, if you were a soldier and you allowed a prisoner to escape, the soldier took the place of the prisoner in sentence. They basically swapped places. And being that Peter was going to be executed the very next day, no less than four, four guards, four soldiers were executed at this point. Now, this is an odd time to see the gospel. <laughs> It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because it's kind of sad. But friends, there is the gospel, even in this little passage, because we have a better God. We have a better king. Let me say it this way. We have a better king that although we were thrust out of a jail cell, although we left a jail cell shackled with both arms, a soldier, a mere lesser soldier, did not take our place. But the king himself came in and swapped punishments. He took our punishment. One who had committed no crime, one who was perfect, came and took an imperfect life so that we could flee out of a jail cell. That should be good news to some of you. Some of you have never heard anything like that before. Hear me very clearly. Whenever we spring out of jail, it was because a king came and stepped into it and took a punishment that was aimed for you and me. Jesus being punished, not for being Jesus, but for being us. We have a better king. Better than Herod anyway, right? Because this is what Herod did. He rearranges his calendar and he squirts right out of the city and goes to Caesarea because he's not so popular anymore. <laughs> Peter got out again. So what's happening? His stock price is dropping. But he goes to Caesarea because there he's got a beef and he can get these people to worship and magnify him. It says in verse 20, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god. 
not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Yummy. Worms. Whatever that means. Some people say round worms. Some people say it's some sort of a parasite. I don't know that it really matters. I think it's a little bizarre but very ironic that an angel of the Lord frees a condemned man and in the very next passage he condemns a free man. Right? I think one thing I see in this is that he was aiming to get them to magnify him. That was a goal of his. Now Josephus was an ancient Jewish historian. Now the stuff he wrote was not scripture, but it was detailed. And he actually has a lot of detail on this event to add some color to what Luke is briefly telling us. And what we see in this is that he had a robe that he put on, the royal robes he put on that morning, had silver and other metal threads entwined and embedded in that so that when the morning sun hit him, when, his, when he typically delivered his oration, it glimmered and it shined and it made him look like a god. Why? Because that's what he wanted. That's what he wanted. What do we learn in this? This is a crazy passage. What do we learn in this? Those who are with God will win. Those who are not with God will lose. Very simple. Very simple. Peter wins. Herod loses. Those who are with God will win. Ultimately will win. Those who are against God will ultimately lose. It's not actually a question about whether God is for us. God, are you for me right now? The answer to that question is whether you are for God. Let me explain. You can't have an affection for God. You can't have a desire to follow and love God unless he has already pursued you and been for you. When you are for him, and you plant your flag in that community, and you have repented from being your own king, and you call Jesus king, and you become a Christian, friend, he is for you. He is for you. It's important for you to know this. What determines whether God is for us or against us actually doesn't have very much to do with us at all. Look at Psalm 1. You should be there in your Bibles right now or in your app. Psalm 1. This is a passage that's fascinating to me. It starts off this way. I tell you what, let's read it together. I love doing this with you guys. Y'all ready? Let's read it together. Blessed is the man who walks not... For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Most of us read this passage right here as a little bit of a ruler for us, a measuring rod. We approach it with the question, how am I doing? Am I righteous? Am I like the person that this describes? Does this describe me? The thing is, it's, it's actually talking more about Jesus than it is about you or me. This is a prophetic psalm. It's a prophetic psalm. I mean, Jesus is the one 
who is perfectly righteous. He is the one that perfectly walks, perfectly stands, perfectly sits amidst an evil culture. He is the one who is planted perfectly. He is the one that bears perfect fruit. He is the one who's never withering, but only prospers. This is actually about Jesus. It's a character description of who he is. Now, the psalm even begins with the word blessed. And listen, this is not the same blessing that you hear whenever it comes to the prosperity gospel. That's why I started with this. Blessings in a prosperity gospel or a prosperity message, what that usually means is getting things. I have gotten things. I have gotten a better car, a better spouse. I have gotten more health. I have gotten a a bigger smile on my face. I have gotten things, and those are called blessings. But biblically, anytime you see the word blessing, you can insert the redeeming presence of God. God's redeeming presence is a blessing, whether you're impoverished, sick, dying, or otherwise. To have God's redeeming presence with you, among you, inside of you, is a blessing. Jesus Christ himself is God's redeeming presence among mankind. It starts off talking about him. It's deeply talking about him. The psalm talks about Jesus and his family and those who are not in his family. And can you tell, did you see what the difference was? What separates the righteous and the wicked in this psalm? It's not good works. It's not performance. It's not praying something a certain way or doing something a certain way. It just simply says that they are the ones that are known. They are known. Again, we go back to the fact that God pursues us. It's a grace to us. Grace means God's favor coming to you totally despite you. You can't outrun his favor. You can't earn his favor. It comes. That's why it's grace. We just receive it by faith. He knows us. He chases after us. He pursues us. And he never misses us. He gets what he wants. Because God always wins. God always wins. That's what this says. That's what Psalm 1 says. That's what Acts 12 says. Those who are with God will win because he always wins. Those who are not with God, ignore that. We don't know what that is. I'm so old, though, I could barely see my paper right now, though. So if I start sounding senseless up here, just go with it, okay? Doesn't it look, though, like Herod, doesn't it look like he's winning in this? He loses. Worms. Death. Doesn't it look like Peter is losing? Shackles. Guards. It's not. He's winning. In fact, Paul says later on, if God could be for us, who could be against us? Listen, friends, hear me. Don't be distracted. Listen. Do the work of reminding yourself and reminding those you are doing life with. Do the work of preaching the gospel to yourself. Do the work of reminding yourself that God wins. You have to tell yourself often, God wins. Not that we don't believe it, but we have to remind ourselves every single day, sometimes multiple times every day. And we know this because a tomb was empty. The blessed one in Psalm 1 left the tomb. He lives with us. He lives among us. He lives for us. God wins. God wins. And He is for you. And He loves you. And because of that, you can rest. You can sleep. You're free to be on mission. You're free to be in community. You're free not to be about yourself all the time. You're free not to be in the center of the orbit of this small little micro-universe. You are free. You're free to stop wringing your hands. You're free 
from wondering whether God is really God and whether he's really in control. You're free from that. Even 1 Corinthians says, and this is Paul quoting Hosea, saying, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Listen, not even death wins. Not even death can gloat over us. Not even death wins. So we can celebrate. We can submit to this. And we can rest knowing that God loves us and he is in control all at the same time. We can, we can rest knowing that some will perish and some won't. Some will die from cancer and some will not. Some will have material wealth and some will not. Some will be chronically happy and some won't. Some will struggle with depression. You will have haves and you will have have-nots. But that does not determine who is blessed. Blessed is where the redeeming presence of God is found. You have to tell yourself that. You have to remind yourself of this. Often. Do you want to know if God is for you in your jam? Do you want to know that? Are you for him? Does your heart belong to him? Are your affections after him? That is how you know. He wins. He never loses. Listen, there's a great application for us here. We're almost done. The application is we don't need to be in restful situations for us to have restful hearts. There is great peace to be found in prison cells. Great peace, right? Most of us in here, we have our jams, we have our issues, and what we think in our mind is, is as soon as I get out of this jam, then I can rest. As soon as I get that house, get that spouse, get that job, then I can rest. Then I can take a deep breath and all the plates are spinning on all the poles, and the whole universe as well, and all the variables line up and balance out, and then, and then at that point, I can take a deep breath and say, ah, I'm at peace. That's not how it happens, is it? I mean, when's the last time that ever happened for you? Never? For like 20 seconds maybe once? Because Peter is showing us here it happens in a prison cell the night before he is executed. It's a great application for me. As Peter sits there, you know he felt pain. And I don't care what it says on the wall at the gym or on the side of a Gatorade bottle. Pain is not so much, you know, weakness leaving the body. I get it. That's funny. Ha ha. But what pain really is, is looking square in the eyes of your deepest need. Pain is your deepest need being exposed. I need this, yet I don't have it. Therefore, I'm in pain. Where is it that you're in pain right now? As you sit chained up in your jail cell, in a jam, looking around, knowing the impending doom that's around you, where are you most in pain? Look at it. Square up with it. What is it exposing about you and what you think you need? You know, take anxiety, for example. Because I know we do have anxious people in here. I'm one of them. Anxiety says I don't have control. That's what the need says. I need control. I'm in pain right now because I don't have control and I need it. Bad. But that's not really what we need, is it? What we need is to remind ourselves that we're drastically not in control, but God is. He regards us more than we regard ourselves, and for his glory and for our good, he's very active. God is in control. It's only then that you can trust and sleep and rest. Anxiety has more to do with believing God is really God than it does in really getting our stuff taken care of. Where are you in pain right now? I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to finish right here. John 16 says this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. 
In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. As the world overwhelms us, we take our needs and our pains to the one who has overcome the world. We do it with joy knowing that he is, he is sufficient for the task. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you, Father, that you are in control. Father, that you win. Lord, I thank you that you're not to be ambushed. You're never in need. You're never frightened. You're never confused. You never struggle like that. You don't suffer like that. You never scratch your head. You never wonder what to do next. You're never defeated. You're never accosted. You're never put down. You're never tripped up. You are always and forever in control, and you are good, and you love us. You love your church. You love your bride. You love your family. You regard us highly. And Father, whether we find ourselves in in prison cells or not, whether we're getting what we want or not, let us repeat what Peter must have been feeling, what James Calvert says, I have already died. I've already died. Lord, help our heart grow content and satisfied with you no matter what. Help us be satisfied. I'm not there yet, Lord. I need to be satisfied. I need to be satisfied with you. Content in you. Lord, help us as we approach and square our shoulders with the pains in our life right now. That we wouldn't just immediately run away from it, but that we would square up and see what it is that we're really after. What is that medicine that we think takes away the pain? And Father, where it's not you, show us where that idol is. Where it's not you, Father, correct our hearts that we would not be satisfied with anything but you. Lord, you are so good to us. You are so good to us. You are such a good king, stepping into our prison cell, taking our punishment, tackling the cross where we should have been. It's grace, pursuing us, gifting it to us, not allowing us to brag over how much we earned it, not allowing us to run and throw rocks and pelt you as hard as we can, but you come and you pursue and you wrap your arms around us, capturing our heart, taking us a, a stone heart out and putting a heart of flesh in, garnering our affections, falling in love with us as we walk in love with you. I thank you for that. We're so unworthy of that. We love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.